Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Good morning and welcome to our morning worship service here at West Houston Bible Church. This morning we have a uh, announcement that is both sad and one of joy. Uh, this morning at 9 a.m., Phyllis Brown went to be with the Lord. Gene called me about 9.30 to give me the news, and he said uh, about the only other information he was able to give me was that um, they would like, in lieu of flowers or other uh, things are usually given at this time, they would like for people to make donations to uh, a missionary or to a favorite uh, missionary organization. Phyllis was born a, and raised in a missionary family, and so missions were always uh, very important and very close to them. Before we get started this morning, I think it's very appropriate that we go to the Lord in prayer, focus our thinking. I know that uh, for some of you, that was just a surprise. Many of us have known Jean and Phyllis for many, many years, and and it was only four months ago that she was sitting on the back row at the pastor's conference. And we never know when the Lord's time is going to be for us. I think it's very sober, sobering when someone close to us uh, is taken to be with the Lord rather suddenly because it makes us realize that life truly is but a vapor. And we have a short time and we need to redeem the time for the day draws near. Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord. Father, we're so very grateful that we have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sins. We know that by faith alone in Christ alone we have eternal life and we have forgiveness of our sins and we have an eternal relationship with you so that at the time of death we know what happens, that we are instantly ushered into your presence by the angels and we are absent from our body face to face with you and there's no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain for the old things passed away. However, it's often very painful and sorrowful for those who are left behind. And, Father, we continue to pray for Jean and for Giselle and for her husband as they uh, go through this initial time of uh, loss and grieving. We know that uh, your grace will sustain them and strengthen them, that this will be a time of tremendous testimony to your grace, and we ask that you just strengthen them during this time. Father, now as we gather together to worship you, we pray that God the Holy Spirit will enable us to focus our attention on our worship this morning, that we may not be distracted by things that have gone on around us, but that we might focus our attention on who you are and what you have done in our lives and what you have provided for us, that we may learn from your word how to live for you and please you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The second Sunday of every month is our opportunity to celebrate the Lord's work on the cross by remembering it at the Lord's table. I'm reminded this morning of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which is a summation of the focal points and priority of the early church. There we read, and they, that is, these who had come to know the Lord, to trust Him alone for their salvation, in the first early days of the church age following the day of Pentecost and uh, Peter's sermon, which is recorded earlier in the chapter, had a uh, large number, thousands actually, who uh, trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, some 4,000 not long after. And in Acts 2.42 we read, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, what's interesting about this is many people look at this at first blush in their uh, English version, and they think that they focused on four things. Actually, there are only two things there. The first is that they devoted, and that word has the idea of making the highest, something the highest priority. They were profoundly committed and focused on two things. 
The first was the apostles' teaching to understanding the Word of God, specifically in relationship to who the Messiah was, what he came to do, and what had been accomplished on the cross. The cross was always the centerpiece of the message. No matter what you're teaching in the whole counsel of God, ultimately everything flows in and out of the cross. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Now, a lot of folks today think that fellowship means getting together and having social life with other Christians. But this context, the way this is structured in the Greek, the next two things are set up appositionally in, in terms of the grammar. Now, what that means is that the next two, two, two words explain more fully this noun for fellowship. And what it shows us is that the fellowship that was the focal point of the meeting of the local church was not fellowship with other believers, but fellowship with God. And so that was comprised of two things, the breaking of bread, which is a way of referring to the Lord's table. It was their opportunity to focus on these two elements that we have, the bread and the cup, as they are symbols of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work which he accomplished on the cross. And, of course, prayer is also an aspect of our fellowship with God. So they devoted themselves to observing the Lord's table. Now, when the Lord instituted the Lord's table, he took these two elements out of a previous uh, ritual that was common in uh, in Judaism and an Old Testament uh, ritual in the Passover. During the Passover, they would gather together and they would eat an entire meal, and the center of the meal was a lamb that had been sacrificed. And, of course, that lamb was a picture of the of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the of his messianic work, as John the Baptist indicated when they uh, came to be, excuse me, the using a new computer, and so just ignore the screen. It's got a life of its own. Um, when the, when the Lord came, John the Baptist announced, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this was the focal point that they recognized that there was a sermon in the Lamb, a sermon of substitutionary atonement, that the Lamb would die for or in the place of the, of others. And in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, he died on the cross in our place as our substitute. He paid the penalty for our sins. That is the work of Christ. But this lamb had to be qualified before it could be the Passover lamb and serve as the Passover meal. It had to be observed for uh, three days prior to the Passover to make sure that it was indeed uh, not sick, that it was without spot or blemish. In the same way, during the Lord's ministry, during his life on the earth, he was evaluated, he was observed, he was examined, and it was determined that he was without sin. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He was born without a sin nature, without the imputation of Adam's original sin, and he never committed any personal sin. He lived his human life and his humanity completely without sin. This qualified him to go to the cross to be our Passover lamb. So that the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Christ our Passover. So when we come to the Lord's table, the focal point is on these two elements, the bread which represents his, his humanity, his person, his qualifications, and the cup, which is usually grape juice or wine, the color of which reminds us of blood and the shedding of blood uh, for a sacrifice. So when we come to the Lord's table, we focus our attention on who Christ is, what Christ has done. It is a time to remember what he has done, that this, this is true for all of us, no matter what our gifts, talents, intelligence, or strengths or weaknesses may be, no matter what our successes or failures, we are all equally under condemnation from God's justice because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the grace of God has provided a perfect solution, a perfect salvation, in the work of Jesus Christ, so that at the cross we have the perfect level playing field. We all have the same option 
and that is to just trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. As we come to the Lord's table, it is we must recognize that it is designed for anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just those who are members of this local congregation. If you have put your faith alone in Christ alone, then you are invited to participate with us in the observance of the Lord's table. The Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians that it was important to be in fellowship with the Lord, not to have known sins or unknown sins, uh, breaking fellowship with the Lord. And so he exhorted them to examine themselves to make sure that they were in fellowship. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to put your, uh, give you the opportunity to uh, express any known sins to God and to prepare yourself for concentration and the worship of the Lord through the Lord's table. After a few moments of silent prayer, I'm going to ask Doug if he would please come forward and return thanks for the bread. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ's saving work for us on the cross, that he was qualified uh, through remaining perfect in his humanity, to go to the cross and serve as our substitute in his sinless perfection. We thank you for the bread which represents his body and sinless perfection. We pray that as we partake of the service that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind the things that we've learned and make this a memorable occasion. In Jesus' name, amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. Our Lord took the bread as he was observing the Passover meal with his disciples. The bread was unleavened. Leaven in Scripture is a symbol of sin. The fact that the bread was unleavened pictured the fact that in his humanity our Lord was without sin. He was sinless. He took the bread, he broke it, he passed it out to his disciples, and he said, As often as you eat this, do so in remembrance of me. going to ask Morgan Franklin if he would please return thanks for the cup. Father, we thank you for the sacrifices that you made that were so great we cannot even imagine them. We pray that you would keep these sacrifices forefront in our mind and help us to go forth in joy realizing the salvation that is resulting from it. We pray that you would bless this cup as we take it to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. It's our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. Our Lord then took the third cup, which was called the cup of redemption. He invested it with new meaning. He said, this is the new covenant of my blood, which is given as a substitute for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Let's stand together. We'll sing hymn number 185, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. We'll sing the third verse softly and crescendo on the fourth. Grace is the basis of our salvation. Grace is the basis for our spiritual life and spiritual growth. Grace is the basis for all operations within the local church, and that includes the uh, ministry of giving, the worship of giving, when we have the opportunity to respond to the grace of God in a way that expresses our appreciation and gratitude for all that he has provided for us. Scripture says, as every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for all that you have provided for us, all that you give us for our spiritual life and for everything in our lives. And, Father, these gifts 
We dedicate to you as simply a token of our appreciation and gratitude for all that you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started in our study of God's word, let's go to him in prayer to ask his guidance and direction. Let's pray. Father, you have given us a complete and sufficient revelation. It has told us everything we need to know about you, about who we are as human beings and as fallen human beings. And you have given us a revelation of all that you've done in history in order to bring about a perfect salvation, one that is dependent not upon who we are, what we do, but one that is dependent solely upon who you are. And it is this outworking of your plan that fits, that we are studying, that fits within a broader context of an even greater, larger rebellion that took place in eternity past among the angels. And ultimately, all these rebellions will come to a head at a future event known as the Great Tribulation, following which you will judge sin and evil. Now, Father, as we continue to study these things, we pray that it would encourage us as we recognize that even though we live in the world today in this fallen cosmic system, and even though Satan still operates in the, as the prince and the power of the air, we know that you are ultimately in control and that despite the chaos that seems to reign around us, there is peace, there is stability as we rest in your provision. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, last week I was not here because I had the privilege of participating in a very uh, very special ceremony up in Preston City, Connecticut. For those of you who don't know, before I moved back to Houston, that's uh, where I pastored at Preston City Bible Church. And some nine years ago, the summer of 1998, I got a call from a young man who was at that time just completing his third year at uh, the United States Military Academy at West Point, and he wanted to come over and visit and go to church over the weekend. And so he came by somewhat circuitous route because he missed a bus, and he showed a lot of perseverance because he figured out how to get to New York City. Then he caught another train uh, up to New London. Then he caught a bus, and then he caught a, a taxi. I, he was four hours late getting there, but I was amazed that he persevered, showed a lot about his character and his desire to know the word. And during that weekend, we formed a friendship, and he told me that he believed he had the gift of pastor-teacher, and he wanted to know what he needed to do in order to be prepared to go to seminary when he finished his military obligation, and then uh, what he should watch out for, where he should go to seminary, what he should watch out for, things of that nature. And that's what he did. He graduated from uh, West Point. He went into the military he went, was assigned to the 4th uh, Infantry Division as a uh, mortar platoon leader when they went into the invasion in Iraq, and he uh, spent his uh, military obligation th- uh, there and at Fort Hood, and then when he got out of the Army, he began his studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. He somehow managed to squeeze three years or four years into three, and he graduated this last May. And uh, back in uh, January, Preston City Bible Church had interviewed him and then called him to be their pastor once he graduated. But he was not ordained, and so uh, I was asked to conduct an ordination service and to convene an ordination council, and that's why I was gone last weekend. I just thought you would enjoy seeing some of these 
pictures. If I can get things to work right here. Let's see. Okay. All right. That seems to be working. This is, as we were sitting up front, that's David Roseland on the far side. And uh, I'm just opening up the ceremonies. We took the time to grill him. We had four men on the ordination uh, council, three others besides myself. And starting from the far end of that front bench, you had Dr. Elliot Johnson, who's a professor of Bible exposition at Dallas Seminary. His emphasis is on hermeneutics and dispensationalism. Sitting uh, next to him on his left is a face familiar to many of you. That's uh, Charlie Clough. And then next to Charlie Clough is Jay Chapel, who's the pastor of a sister church up in that area, North Stonington Bible Church. And then on the front row, you have two of the four deacons from Preston City, Dave Tongren, who's been a deacon there almost as long as I've been alive, he is now 90 years old. And then Mike Regal, who many of you recognize because he's been down here for conferences before. And then uh, this was early on. Uh, eventually, about 55 or 60 people showed up for the uh, inquisition, for the uh, oral examination. Uh, David was very relaxed, handled things very well. We began with a series of questions related to the, his knowledge of the Bible. We started with just general biblical information, then Old Testament, then New Testament, and then we got into the different areas, uh, different uh, branches of systematic theology, asking him anywhere from five or six or seven questions in each category. I think uh, Dr. Johnson began the questioning by asking him if he could identify the basic theme or themes of the book of Genesis and then tracing that through the book of Genesis. He followed that up with some questions related to his uh, understanding of uh, the Noahic flood and the age of the earth, and then Charlie asked him a question related to his understanding of Genesis 15:6 and its relationship to justification. So it was a uh, well-attended event. Those two folks there in the center, the man with the glasses and the lady with the glasses are David's folks, and... Um, so you also get to see how intent everybody everybody was. Dr. Johnson, who's been involved in uh, several ordinations, had never seen a congregation invited to uh, sit and listen, and he thought that was a tremendous thing because he said, you know, people sitting around me are trying to figure out if they know the answers to these questions. So it challenges them. It's sort of a self-test they can go through. Plus, it shows to the congregation, the qualities, qualifications, the breadth of knowledge that a man needs to have before he gets into the pulpit and begins to uh, pastor a congregation. So it was uh, about three hours. We went from 9.30 to 12.30 with a 20-minute break, following which we convened and voted that, uh, yes, indeed, he, we felt like he was fully qualified. As part of his qualification, we had... Um, uh, asked him to provide certain things. He had to provide uh, evidence that he could communicate the Word of God clearly. And, of course, you all know that because several times I had him uh, come here to uh, substitute for me when I was out of town, and those were the messages we put up on the Internet. We also had evidence that he knew how to exegete in Greek and Hebrew because of his coursework at Dallas Seminary, and he had had to fill out about a a 30-question questionnaire that was to evaluate his understanding of doctrine. Now, some people don't understand why you get ordained, but ordination goes back to the New Testament practice of laying on of hands with a man when he has... There we go. When he has uh, been recognized publicly as being qualified to be a, a pastor... And you see, there's the scene there uh, as we were preparing to lay hands on him. An ordination is a public recognition by a local congregation that a man has the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher, but it is not just a recognition that he has the gift. Many people, many men may have the gift, but that doesn't mean they should be ordained. He has. It also recognizes that he has taken the necessary steps to become qualified to exegete and exposit the scriptures as well as to lead a local congregation and has matured spiritually to meet the qualifications as listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7. 
To this end, a man is qualified through personal endorsement from those who uh, know him, uh, provide evidence of his communication and leadership gift, answer a written examination to evaluate his basic knowledge of the Bible and theology, and demonstrate that he is able to analyze the text of Scripture and communicate its contents to a congregation. The candidate must also pass an oral exam of his basic knowledge of theology in the Bible and his view on pastoral responsibility. So we also concluded by posing to him some of the more interesting situations that we as pastors have found ourselves in when people have come to us for counseling to see if he could think his way through ways to handle those particular situations. So he was uh, ordained on Sunday morning. Uh, The exam took place Saturday morning. The ordination itself took place on Sunday morning. Uh, Charlie Clough spoke at the first hour, and I gave the ordination message the second hour. And the day before, we actually went out and had a church picnic that afternoon, and David had never been baptized, so I took him out in Hopeville Pond, baptized him, and then turned around. And there's a, probably 75 or 100 kids out swimming in the, around us, and they all stopped. What are they doing over there? And started kind of walking over to see what was going on. And after I baptized David, David then baptized nine kids in his new congregation and ended with by baptizing his wife. Also, uh, there's just some other pictures of some of the folks being baptized. And then I thought you'd appreciate the closing picture with me, with uh, Charlie Clough. Okay. It was a great day, beautiful day. Okay, now we're going to get back into our lesson, if I can figure out how to make this work, because I'm using... Uh, my new Mac computer and things don't quite function quite like the PC did, so it's a learning experience for all of us. Here we go. Babylon in Bible prophecy. We are in the middle of a study of the angelic conflict. The angelic conflict describes the rebellion that took place in eternity past when the highest of all the angels, known as Lucifer, rebelled against God, and then led approximately one-third of the angels in rebellion against God. These angels who fell with him are sometimes referred to as demons, sometimes referred to as unholy angels, but they make up the army of Satan, and they are quite numerous. We do not know how many angels there are, but there are certainly Uh, millions of angels. The Bible describes them as myriads upon myriads, uh, 10,000 upon 10,000. So there could be 20, 30, 40, 50 million angels, a third of which fell and followed Satan in his rebellion. Now, angels are important to the book of Revelation, as is an understanding of Satan's fall, because Satan's fall is first referred to and described in Isaiah chapter 13, in a context, or Isaiah chapter 14, in a context of Isaiah 13 and 14, which is a, an oracle against the king of Babylon. And last time, I went through a comparison of several key prophecies on Babylon, from Isaiah chapter 13 and 14, Isaiah 21, Jeremiah 15 and 51, and Revelation 17 and 18. And it was one of those uh, whiz-bang information dumps that a lot of you love. Some of you just get left with your head spinning. But the purpose is to pull together and to summarize what was in all of these chapters to show that the prophecies that were made in the Old Testament related to the final destruction of Babylon have never actually taken place. The reason that is important is because to understand Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, which is one of the key passages describing uh, the fall of Satan that has been understood by most Christian scholars for most of the church age as describing the fall of Satan, uh, it fits within this historical uh, 
oracle or announcement of judgment on Babylon. So we have to understand some things about what the Bible says about Babylon. And so last time I also took you through a little bit of a panorama of Babylon in time and the history of Babylon. Babylon represents the kingdom of man in the uh, Bible versus the future establishment of the kingdom of God. So we start off with the God's throne in heaven, eternity past, and here we have a timeline from eternity past to eternity future. We begin with the creation of the material universe. This was followed by the fall of Adam and the Noahic flood. The first mention of Babylon comes in Genesis chapter 11 with the construction of the Tower of Babel, where all of the human race gathers together to build this edifice that is going to elevate them. It's like a mountain. It's a man-made mountain. And the idea behind it is, well, God might have gotten mad at us, so mad at us that he flooded everything. Now we're going to build our own mountain so we can uh, get high enough and survive the flood uh, and avoid God's uh, judgment. It was an expression of man's arrogance and his independence of God. And afterwards, God, the Scripture says, anthropomorphically, God came down, saw what they were doing, and scattered them, and confused their languages, so that the place was called uh, Babel, which has the idea of the gate of God, but it came to indicate the confusion of languages. And even today, in almost every language of the word of the world, the word Babel, uh, means to just talk in nonsense syllables. So that is an indication uh, linguistically of how this word has come down and spread out through all of the languages. The Tower of Babel is the origin of Babylon as the center of the kingdom of man. Now, the kingdom of man represents the vast majority of human history from the events in Genesis chapter 11 to the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation period. So we set that up on the chart, and then we go through basic historical events of the Old Testament. We have the call of Abram, who lived in Ur of the Chaldees, which was geographically close to Babylon. The next mention of Babylon or inference of Babylon occurs in the time of of Abraham. I mentioned last time in Genesis chapter 14, you had an alliance of four kings, one of whom was Amraphel of Shinar. Shinar is where Babel was located in the plains of Shinar, and they came and attacked the area that we now refer to as Israel. They attacked Sodom, Gomorrah, the uh, five cities of the plains, and took Lot captive, headed north, and when they were camped near the later city of Dan, at the time it was a Canaanite city called Laish, Then Abraham and his servants attacked them, freed the hostages, defeated the kings, and that is the last mention of Babylon until you get into the period known as the divided kingdom of Israel. So in the early stage of of Genesis, you have the Tower of Babel representing man's independence of God. This, of course, uh, mankind at that time is being uh, influenced, energized by Satan, God counters with the call of Abram, and he is going to build out his own people through whom he is going to work. Uh, they, are, they go into uh, Egypt uh, for approximately 400 years, uh, during which time they are made slaves, then God delivers them at the Exodus. And then you have the, the, they go into the land, the conquest, the period of the united monarchy, and then the rebellion that took place when Solomon died, the division into the northern kingdom and southern kingdom, the northern kingdom known as Israel, the southern kingdom known as Judah. The northern kingdom went out in 722, was destroyed by the Assyrian Empire as God was disciplining them for their disobedience. Not long after that, Babylon began to rise as a military uh, power. They, by, by 625, Nabopolassar uh, defeats the, uh, the uh, Assyrians, seizes the throne of Babylon in 625, 
and aided by media, he uh, defeats the Assyrians. He died in 609, is succeeded by his son Nebuchadnezzar, and in 685, the third invasion into Israel, he destroys the temple, and the Jews are taken captive and taken out of the land. The Babylonian Empire lasts from roughly 612 to 539 B.C., and at 539, uh, Belteshazzar is defeated by the uh, Persians, a a joint alliance of the Persians and the Medes. Uh, Under Cyrus, the Jews are allowed to return to Babylon in approximately 536. They rebuild the temple. The... Uh, Jesus Christ comes at the first advent. You have the cross, which ends the age of the law. Fifty days later, you have the day of Pentecost, the descent of the Holy Spirit, and the beginning of the church age. We're currently in the church age. The church age will end with the rapture of the church, and that will come sometime very shortly before the beginning of the tribulation. So as we saw last time, there is a rebuilding of Babylon because these prophecies were, of its destruction were never completely fulfilled. There is a future restoration of literal Babylon. There will be a seven-year period known as the time of Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation, at the end of which time the Antichrist, uh, indwelt by Satan, established himself as a god and then uh, in a in an hour, Revelation 18 says, the city of Babylon will be destroyed at the second coming of Christ. This ends the rule of Babylon, the kingdom of man, and Jesus Christ establishes his 1,000-year reign known as the millennium, and this is the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. That gives you a panorama of human history based on divine revelation and the way Babylon fits into this particular revelation. Now let's go back to the Old Testament, talk about some things there for just a minute. We have Babel, the gate of God. This is an artist's conception of their construction of the tower. It's unfinished. Uh, By the way, the headquarters for the European Union in, uh, I think it's in Brussels, is that right? In, um, in Belgium, is built and constructed intentionally, self-consciously, to model the unfinished Tower of Babel, just to give you a little idea of how things come together. They, these things don't happen by chance. It was, this is a picture, a model of what it uh, probably looked like, it was a what was called a ziggurat. It was uh, religious in its orientation. To there was the place of, of elevation to get closer to God, and up in the upper chamber was where the uh, most significant rituals uh, took place. Babylon was a, one of the largest, most significant cities in its heyday in the ancient world, but it was not destroyed as the scriptures prophesied. As we went through last time, it was going to be destroyed quickly, and suddenly it would be destroyed by fire. And, of course, we saw that that never actually took place. Uh, Babylon is located in the area known as Mesopotamia. There's this area over here to the left. This is the area of the land of Canaan or the Promised Land, and now Israel. Here you see Jerusalem. And directly to the uh, east, you have Babylon. Babylon is located just south. Uh, if you can see the arrow, that's pointing to the location of Bag- Baghdad today. So Babylon is right at the center geographically of all of the activity that we see going on in the Middle East from the first Gulf War in the early 90s to the current Iraq War and this just brings all of our attention to that area of the of the world. This orients you a little more geographically. Over here you have the Mediterranean. Down here the modern state of Israel. Up here Lebanon, just to the uh, surrounding Lebanon you have Syria. To the south of Syria the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And then to the uh, east you have modern Iraq and Babylon is located, wait a minute, we'll stick with this slide, where I put a white dot. 
uh, right there, kind of blocking out the end of the Tigris. That's the location of modern Baghdad. Babylon is located here inside the bottom circle. Nineveh, the remains of Nineveh, the upper yellow circle, that is the location of the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Just to give you a little idea of where everything is located now, when Abram was called by God, he lived down here in Ur of the Chaldees, just south of Babylon, and as he left to go to Haran, he would have gone by the city of Babylon as it existed in his day. And then from Haran later, he went down to the land that God was directing him to, the land that God was, had promised to give to him and his descendants. Babylon was a mighty city in its time, and, and it was located, let's go back to that, that, it was located right on the Euphrates River that flowed through the city so that they had uh, bridges, and this was a major canal, water source for the city, and you see the uh, gate here uh, where people had entry into the city. Just a couple of other pictures to give you something of an idea of what the city is uh, conceived to have been like at that particular time. Uh, Here's a picture of the Ishtar Gate as it has been reconstructed today. This is considered one of the great uh, archaeological discoveries of the of the modern time, and here we have a picture of its capture, the time of its capture by the Persians. There was a huge banquet that was given by Belteshazzar, who was a descendant grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and at this banquet, suddenly a hand appeared out of nowhere and began to write upon the upon the wall a message that could not be deciphered. So they had to go find this old Jewish guy that used to know how to interpret dreams by the name of Daniel, bring him out of retirement in order to interpret this. And when Daniel looked at the writing, he said, Now this is the inscription that was written out, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. Daniel said, This is the interpretation of the message. Mene means God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed upon the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. So in 539 under Cyrus the Great, the Medes and the Persians defeated the Babylonians. Now what they did in order to defeat them was not to destroy the city in an hour or in a day. They didn't set it on fire. What they did was they attacked uh, at night, they dammed the river, they made their way across, and they entered peacefully through the gates and took the city while Belteshazzar and all of his officials and the army and everybody was gathered together uh, having this tremendous feast. They took it by surprise. The next day, everybody woke up. There, were, there was a new administration in charge, a new empire in control, and things continued. Daniel became the number three person in the empire. Jews did not leave as they had been warned to, to leave. So the prophecies related to the fall of Babylon and to the participation of the Medes in that fall were, was not fulfilled in 586, or excuse me, 539 uh, BC. I went through various passages last time, and I've just summarized it this time in a chart. I didn't put everything in the chart. That would be overwhelming, but I thought, especially for those who weren't here last time, we would at least summarize what, was, what, I, what I did. Now, this is really important. You may not realize how significant this study is, but uh, this kind of thing has only been understood in the last 30 or 40 years among many traditional dispensationalists. It was thought that, that Babylon was just sort of a code word for the revived Roman Empire. And now, through greater study by uh, more scholars, it's recognized by a vast number of, of uh, prophecy scholars that Babylon refers to a resurrected city of Babylon distinct from the revived Roman Empire and the power base of the uh, of the Antichrist, saw that it uh, Babylon in the Old Testament and in Revelation 17 and 18 is compared to a golden cup. Re- uh, Jeremiah 
Back up Jeremiah 51, verse 7, and Revelation 17, 3 and 4, Revelation 18, 6. In Jeremiah 15, 51, Babylon is pictured in terms of its influences dwelling on many waters. This is same terminology is used in Revelation 17, verse 1. Uh, in Isaiah 13, our passage that we're going to for the fall of, of Satan uh, describes Babylon as being surrounded and attacked by the nations in Isaiah 13, verse 14. This is also stated in Jeremiah 51, 7b, and in Revelation 17, verse 2. Uh, an identical name is used in Isaiah, Isaiah 13, 19, and 21, 9, as well as Jeremiah 50, verse 1, and Revelation 17, 5, and 18, 10. So there's no code word here. Babylon means Babylon every other place in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Then it must mean Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 and not be used as some sort of uh, allegorical term or, or symbol. Uh, in Jeremiah 51, 8, the city is to be destroyed suddenly. Revelation 18, 8, it will take place in an hour. It is unexpected and sudden. It will be destroyed by the Medes. Now, the Medes live in northern, or from the area of northern Iran or uh, modern northern Iran or, or Persia, and they will come from the from the from the north, from the east. Uh, Isaiah thirteen seventeen, Isaiah twenty one two, Jeremiah fifty one eleven and twenty eight indicate that they are part of the alliance that destroys Babylon at the end times. Following its destruction, it will never again be inhabited. Now, there are many other verses that I refer to, but if you read through uh, Isaiah 13, 19 through 22, Isaiah 14, 23, Jeremiah 50, verse 13, I, uh, Jeremiah 51, 37, and 43, and numerous other places in Jeremiah, it's clear that the ostrich won't make it, will be there. I mean, the jackal will be there. But no, even in Isaiah 13, it says no Arabian will pitch his tent there. And throughout most of the last couple of centuries, it's been shown that there were Arab villages within the walls of the, of the ancient city of Babylon. But the prophecy is that it would never again be inhabited just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Babylon would be punished according to her hostility toward God in Israel. Jeremiah 50, verse 29, Revelation 18, 6. In all three of our passages, day of the Lord imagery is used. Day of the Lord is a reference to that final prophetic judgment on mankind that is usually indicated by all kinds of cosmic catastrophes. The, the sun is turned to blood, the moon is darkened, the stars fall, there are earthquakes. All of these things take place. These are described as happening at the time that Babylon is destroyed in uh, Isaiah 13, 6 through 9, Jeremiah 51, 6, 63 to 64, and Revelation 18, 21. Uh, God's people are told to flee before this happens in Jeremiah 51, 6 and 45 and in Revelation 18, 4. That, of course, did not happen in any time historically that there was any kind of battle related to Babylon. And heaven will rejoice at her destruction in Jeremiah 51, 48 and Revelation 18, 20. Nothing uh, like this has ever happened to Babylon. Some people say, well, it's merely symbolic or allegorical or hyperbolic language. But again and again, you have the same terminology used, and we can't just uh, fall out into some sort of hermeneutical uh, black hole to try to explain something that seems to be fairly, uh, fairly literal. Isaiah 13.20 says, it will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there. This just isn't true. I've got several pictures uh, to show you as we go through this. So the big question is, when will this prophecy be fulfilled? Uh, first question, was it in 689 B.C. by the Assyrian Sennacherib? When he sacked the city, this was 
in the ancient world, no, that doesn't fit the scenario. Was it when the Babylonian Empire ended in 539? Again, no. In 538, Cyrus, no. It will be at the end of the tribulation when the Antichrist is overthrown, as taught in Revelation 17 and 18. Now, in the campaign for Armageddon, there are actually eight stages, as have been set out in Arnold Fruchtenbaum's excellent work, The Footsteps of Jesus. And he outlines these, and this chart is based on that. And the second stage, the, the Armageddon is actually not one battle, it is a campaign. Uh, the first stage is the gathering of the forces of the Antichrist. Uh, up here, uh, number, in that first area, number one, outside of, uh, the or in the valley of Esdralon, which is a huge valley, and it is called Har Megiddo in the Hebrew, which is the mountain of Megiddo, the Tell of Megiddo, uh, this, where the ancient Canaanite city of Megiddo existed. They've uncovered at least 20, uh, depends on who you read. I've read 18, 22, and the guide we had this year said 27 layers of civilization at Megiddo. So there, it's, it's on a ridge, on a mountain overlooking the valley. But this is where the armies of the Antichrist gather, organize. This is their logistical base before they attack. While they are there, uh, evil news comes, and the Antichrist looks to the east and sees the smoke rising for the destruction of Babylon, and this uh, sets him off to attack Jerusalem. There's an angelic announcement that takes place. It's the second announcement he made in uh Revelation 14, the kingdom of man, Babylon the great, is fallen. She is the one who has influenced the nations. Now today, there's been an uh, attempt to reconstruct Babylon, especially under Saddam Hussein, but even earlier there was an attempt by the Iraqis to reconstruct uh, Babylon. Here you see a satellite image from uh, 423 miles above the earth of the area. You see the Tigris flowing through, and this is the area of the ruins of Babylon. Here are some other slides and pictures of the uh, buildings that are being reconstructed in the city of ancient Babylon. Quite impressive when you realize all that is going on over there. And during the time of uh, Saddam Hussein, they had several large festivals in Babylon to celebrate its renaissance. In fact, uh, Saddam Hussein viewed himself as, as the heir to Nebuchadnezzar. So just a few other sites. Now, what do we find in Revelation? Revelation 16, 18 through 19, we read, There were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since men came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. And the great city, that's Babylon, was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his wrath. Revelation 18, 1 through 3, John records, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, and she has become a dwelling place of demons, and a prison of every unclean spirit, and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Now, this describes the fall of Babylon at the end of the tribulation period. Now, this chronology is very important to understand the interpretation of Isaiah 13 and 14. So let's go back and look at Isaiah. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Isaiah 13. We'll go through some things there. We'll just get up to our passage today, but again, I'm focusing on context. Isaiah began his ministry in 740, or 739 uh, B.C., and he died sometime after 681 B.C. During this time period, you have the rise of the Assyrian Empire 
uh, Isaiah begins his ministry. Uh, Assyria begins their uh, imperial expansion just before that. Assyria, uh, Assyria conquers Syria in 733 and then conquered Israel, the northern kingdom, in 722. Tens of thousands of people were killed in the northern kingdom. Tens of thousands fled south for protection. That's the background for understanding Isaiah 13 and 14. Babylon at this time is just a major city within the Assyrian Empire, and yet uh, Isaiah is going to announce this future judgment on, on Babylon. I pointed this out last time, just to, just to focus our attention again. Isaiah 13 and 14 is in the form of a chiasm. You have the opening. Uh, in a chiasm, you have a, uh, a, a, well, here you have three parts, each developed from the other, and then there's a repetition uh, going out so that it forms what the uh, Greeks call, look like a letter X, and the center of the X which was the Greek letter chi, or uh, we can now pronounce it key, but that's where we get the term chiasm. And the center part is the most important part. So let me just go back to the uh, slide as work because it gives you a little bit of an of a understanding of the outline. The day of the Lord is declared in 13.2 through 16. That is the announcement of the judgment on Babylon. The totality of this judgment is described in verses 17 to 22, and then the result after that destruction is described in 14, 1 through 2. That's the center. There's going to be peace in Israel and unity. That didn't happen in 539 or any of the other periods. There is a taunt then which rehearses the total destruction of Babylon's king. That mirrors the first B, the total and final destruction of Babylon, this taunt is interesting. We have to look at that and say, who's doing the taunting and when are they doing it? That's uh, very important in Bible study. Find out who's talking, when they're talking, who they're talking to. And then the last couple of verses, 14, 22 to 23, gives a summary of the Lord's uh, defeat. Okay, let's just hit some of the high points going through Isaiah 13, uh, 13, 6. 6 through 9 really describes this day of the Lord. I'm not going to read everything related to that, but it identifies this judgment as the day of the Lord. That puts it at the end of the tribulation uh, tribulation period. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty, and then it goes on to describe it in terms of pangs and labor pains and childbirth, which is typical. You can see the same imagery in various other passages related to the day of the Lord. And then in verse 9 we read, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Of course, that has not uh, taken place yet. Then we go into verse uh, 10 through 13. This describes it in terms of these cosmological uh, disasters. For the stars of heaven, their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened by its going forth. The moon will not cause its light to shine, of course, because it has nothing to reflect. And God goes on to say, I will uh, punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. So this is cosmic judgment on Babylon. In verses 11 to 13, this continues... Uh, I think I duplicated that slide. This continues to be developed on into a verse 19. And Babylon, the beauty of the kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. I've seen the area down in that part of the Dead Sea. It's uninhabited today and uninhabitable. This has never been true of the area of, of Babylon. In Isaiah 13, 20 to 22, we read, 
It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. But desert creatures will lie down there, and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches also will live there, and shaggy goats will uh, will frolic there. So it's just an uninhabitable uh, wasteland. Isaiah 13:22. Her fateful time also will soon come. Her days will not be prolonged. Now that's the first part of the prophecy describing the judgment upon Babylon. Then we come to the results in the next chapter in Isaiah 14, when the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel. This is a focus on the united Israel nation. When he has compassion on them and settle them in their own land. Uh, they did not, only a few returned in the returns uh, that led up to the coming of Christ. Still, at the time of Christ, the vast majority of Jews lived outside the land. They had not returned to the land. Uh, he says it's, they will be settled in their own land, and strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The peoples will take them a, along and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord as male servants and female servants, and they will take their captors captive and will rule over their oppressors. That has never happened. This is a picture of Israel uh, taking their full inheritance. This only happens uh, at the, in the millennial kingdom. So the point that I'm making is that following the judgment on Babylon is when Israel, united and at peace, comes into the land and realizes their full inheritance, something that has never taken place. goes on to read in verses 3 through 5, And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Okay, now, let's think about the timeline here. When are they going to take up this taunt against the king of Babylon? When God has established them as the kingdom. So the time frame for the taunt, beginning in uh, approximately verse um, 4, second half of verse 4, the timing of that is in the future at the beginning of the tribulation following the defeat of their enemies at the end of the tribulation. We go on to read in verses 9 through 11, the part of this uh, taunt is that those in Sheol, these are the kings of the nations that have fallen, uh, began to rejoice over the fall of this particular king of Babylon. We read there, Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They, who are the, these are the kings that rebelled against God during the tribulation period. They will all respond and say to you, that is this figure coming up, even you have been made weak as we, you have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as, uh, as your bed beneath you and worms your covering. Okay, let's locate this with a timeline. Here's our basic timeline from the creation of the beginning of the timeline. We have the fall of Satan on the far left, all the way up to the cross in the middle, followed by the church age, the rapture, the tribulation period. The figure of the man halfway between the start and the cross is Isaiah. We're going to look at what he saw. He's looking far into the future at the time of the second coming of Christ, at the time when the Jews are rescued and they establish their kingdom. It is at that time that this king of Babylon is cast into Sheol, into the bottomless pit. And those who are there already take up this taunt against him. And in that taunt, they will say, looking back in time, they will say, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations." For you have said, in other words, this is past tense. This is what you said in your heart. Now, when did he say it? He said it 
way back here at the time of his original fall. Okay? That's so important to understand this time frame. It is, it is a, it's said in the future, but it's referring back to an original statement made by this creature called Halel ben Shahar, translated as Lucifer, the light bearer, and this characterizes his sin at the time that he rebelled against God in eternity past. Now that is what initiated this angelic war against God, this cosmic conflict that the human history is a part of. And there will be a resolution of this finally at the end of the tribulation. But human history must be understood within this broader panorama. And it is the cross that is the centerpiece because at the cross, redemption is accomplished, which not only speaks of our individual salvation, but also redemption of the universe, redemption of the earth, and the rolling back of the curse that is the result of sin and evil in the universe. So we'll get into that uh, next Sunday morning. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together to understand that what happens in history is a part of a plan. It's an outworking of rebellion against you and that you are nevertheless still in control. But you are working out your purposes to ultimately judge and destroy evil And it helps us to understand these things to be able to live and survive and face the realities of living in a fallen world where evil is still very much a reality, where there's undeserved suffering and injustice. But we know that there will ultimately be a full resolution of all of this as you judge sin and evil in the future. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. The instant you trust in Christ as your Savior, God the Father imputes to you his perfect righteousness, you're declared justified, you receive eternal life, and you can never, ever lose it. And Father, we pray that you challenge each of us with the things we learned today, help us to understand them, put them together with other things that we have learned, that God the Holy Spirit can use it in our spiritual growth. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.